What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 106 of the 2QB Experience podcast. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. You can find me over on Twitter at Greg Sauce. You can find the site on there at 2QBs. Of course, the show is brought to you by 2QBs.com. T-W-O-Q-B-S. Flying solo for the week 15 recap and the week 16 preview. It was a bit of a train wreck for quarterback production in fantasy this past week. Uh, The average quarterback score was 13.05 points, which dropped the seasonal average from 18.56 to 17.23. So that's a really big impact for one week to have on fantasy scoring. And as quarterbacks go, so running backs and receivers tend to go. So it was just another in a string of really brutal weeks this past three uh, slates have been really strange and uh, a lot of a lot of dead performances from players that seemed trustable entering the week and with that in mind I'm, I want to get into the week 15 recap and talk about just my own teams and I, I know that you don't care about my fantasy teams I, I understand that um, I, I would like to think that I care about yours uh, I, I'm going to answer some listener related questions at the end of the show but what I'm really hoping to get to by recapping my playoff decisions is that process that we always talk about process over results uh looking for you know things we could have done better uh through hindsight analysis like what worked what didn't work did i make a good decision a bad decision am i judging those decisions for the right reasons and so i have four leagues where i was still alive entering week 15 and the first of which is uh the s macho snake draft league uh these home leagues of mine are called S Macho for a very strange reason, based upon uh, the name of a a neighbor that one of my good buddies Chris uh, used to have. Uh, he was a, he was a strange dude, and uh, he didn't like us very much. So we uh, I don't know we referenced him all the time. We'd make fun of him anyway. That's how the league got its name. And this is a ten team two quarterback league with half point PPR scoring. And as it stands, entering Monday Night Football, I'm recording this right now as Saints Panthers is kicking off. I am just barely scraping by in this league. At kicker and defense, I was outscored uh, 30-5 to combined. Uh, I was lucky enough that my opponent got bad games from Jared Goff, Saquon Barkley, Aaron Jones, Tyreek Hill, Juju Smith-Schuster, and George Kittle. So I'm still in it here. Uh, I just need four or more points from Michael Thomas to advance. So uh, that's looking pretty good. There's not a whole lot for me to take away from here just because uh, both sides of the matchup, uh, my opponent had some bad performances. I had some bad ones. I I think some of the other leagues I can talk about are a little bit more interesting in terms of process uh, that led to the results. And so the second league I want to bring up is uh, the other half of my my home league uh, combo. This is the S Macho Auction, Uh, also 10 teams, uh, the same 10 dudes. And uh, it's super flex instead of 2QB, but I mean, with 10 teams, it's effectively a two-quarterback league. Also half-point PPR, and in this one, I was only outscored at kicker and defense 20-8, uh, to 8. so uh, that's that's a step in the right direction, right? But um, unfortunately for me, in this league, Aaron Jones and Juju were on my side of the matchup, and uh, and I had some other duds uh, on my side, including Andrew Luck and Philip Lindsay. Of, of course, I, you know, in my Gameful Botics A to Z last week, I wrote about how Philip Lindsay was my MVP for the fantasy season, and uh, I should have known better, man. That, that performance he put up against the Browns was... Not great, Um, but anyway, uh, thanks to DeAndre Hopkins and his huge game, I still have a very thin chance to win in this one. Uh, I just need Curtis Samuel and Christian McCaffrey to combine for under 18 points for my opponent. Not looking good, uh, but even if I lose, I feel good about my start-sit processes 
in this league. I, I was an underdog in the matchup as soon as Odell Beckham was ruled out, and my bench players were just as bad, if not worse, than most of my starters. So I, I made mostly correct decisions. Uh, the biggest gain I could have made would have been to start Case Keenum over Andrew Luck, and come on, let's be real, no one in their right mind was going to start Keenum over Luck entering Week 15. I don't care what you think about the Dallas Cowboys as a matchup for luck. I think that that was good process. I think that in general, this league ended up being good process. I mean, maybe I should have made more waiver moves in the week uh, to shore up some of the bad matchups I ended up getting or some of the bad performances I ended up getting. But uh, this is a keeper league. My, my team was full of stud players. I'm not really looking to drop those guys to chase some corner case matchup in the playoffs. I mean, I, I, I made it there based upon the players I had. I wasn't going to tinker too much with that. And so I, I don't feel bad. Even if I lose that, I think I think that one turned out okay. So now we're going to get to the two leagues that I, I probably have more fault in. And the first is the Barf League, uh, the Bay Area Roto Fantasy League uh, that I do with a bunch of other analysts from around uh, the Bay Area. And Sammy Reed, uh, he got me. He iced me in this league. Um, and any complaints I have about poor performance from... My kicker and defense can be put aside. Again, I got I only got seven points from those two positions this week. Uh, this was another instance where I was leaning on Odell Beckham. I was leaning on Philip Lindsay, and you know Beckham didn't play. Lindsay didn't play well, and here I am losing. I also had the bad fortune of starting Ben Roethlisberger and Jameis Winston over Josh Johnson and Nick Mullins. But again, process-wise, I, I don't know. Like I don't think I would have benched Big Ben. On the other hand. It's possible I should have plugged in Josh Johnson over Jameis Winston. That rushing floor that Johnson provides probably was was worth the risk considering Winston's matchup at Baltimore uh, or versus Baltimore. So I, I think that was a punt on my part. I think I, I missed some some equity there by not using Josh Johnson because I talk all the time on the show about how we care about rushing production from our quarterbacks. We know that Josh Johnson's going to do that. I think even on last week's show, Brian Malone and I both tabbed Josh Johnson as a player that we would start over Winston, and ultimately I didn't have the guts to do it, uh, so that's on me. My process also could have been better at running back. Uh, I started the Aritic, and I, and I think he's a fine PPR option. I should note that the Barf League is 12-team Superflex with PPR scoring, you know, the full point per reception. And while Riddick was a fine option, so was Elijah McGuire, who was on my bench. And McGuire had a clear path to big volume once Isaiah Crowell was ruled out, and he had a better matchup than Riddick, all things told. Ultimately, though, I think all this hindsight analysis in the Barf League is a little silly, because even if I could have made the right calls and gotten Elijah McGuire in over Riddick and gotten Josh Johnson in over Jameis Winston... Sammy could have done the same. Uh, he was unfortunate enough to have Keenan Allen in his lineup. Uh, Allen, of course, got hurt right at the beginning of that game. He didn't deliver any fantasy production whatsoever. While Sammy also had Doug Baldwin, Robbie Anderson, and Robert Foster wasting away on his bench. So I, I can make arguments that I could have played better. So could he. Like the, the fact is we made the decisions we made. He came out on top. So uh, congrats to Sammy. Good luck to him in the championship. Now it's time to go super deep. And... What better place to go super deep than the Scott Fish Bowl? I won't get into all the nuanced scoring settings uh, with the SFB, but uh, go check out scottfishbowl.com for more info on those settings. And in this particular league, like it just nothing really illustrates the fears I had about San Francisco's matchup with Seattle better than my lineup here. I, I thought that the Seahawks would dominate this game. I thought they would go wild on the ground and shut down the 49ers on defense. Chris Carson did go wild, but the Niners did not get shut down by any means. And so 
I benched Dante Pettis with these fears in mind, and that wasn't necessarily my worst call. He would have only represented a small gain over the worst wideout that was in my active lineup. My bonehead move was assuming that Seattle wouldn't have to pass much, and I benched Doug Baldwin with that in mind. Baldwin was a game-time decision, and that scared me off to a large degree, especially because I liked a lot of the cuter plays I had to make earlier in the week, uh, like Tim Patrick on the Broncos uh, Saturday and Tyrell Williams on the Chargers uh, in Thursday Night Football. But still, I had Baldwin in my lineup leading up to Sunday morning, Then, of course, when both LaShawn McCoy and Chris Ivory were ruled out, I felt like I was getting a safer floor by using Marcus Murphy than by using, you know, the shadier Doug Baldwin game time decision. I also rationalized the decision based upon the fact that I had held Murphy for multiple weeks for this exact handcuffing scenario, right? Like, I wanted to have these handcuff running backs on my roster on the case that they got elevated to starter potential, right? And that's exactly what happened with Murphy, but... Like a fool, I wanted a safer floor, and come on, get that shit out of here. This is the Scott Fishball. These are the conference finals. I'm playing against the best of the best from multiple 12-team Superflex leagues, so ceiling should have been the only thing I considered, the only thing on my mind, and I definitely wasn't getting that from Marcus friggin' Murphy in the lowly Bills offense. On the other hand, Doug Baldwin against San Francisco's trash heap defense? Injury concerns be damned. Get him into your lineup. Greg, you dumbass, what are you doing? And of course, Murphy dislocated his elbow after only 11 carries uh, for only 35 yards, I should add. Uh, And it looks like I'm probably going to be toast in both that conference final and my division final in the Scott Fishbowl. However, as much as I deserve to lose based upon my poor management here, I still have an outside shot at making things at least interesting. Uh, And and bear with me because things are going to get a little complicated when I'm talking about playing against 10 people in a playoff matchup versus just the standard playing against one person. Uh, But here's what I need. Uh, I need the following things in order to win the Scott Fishbowl's animated conference. I'm, I'm I'm tapping my fingers together, counting things off. You can't see that. This is a podcast, but here I am. My Mark Ingram, Michael Thomas, and Curtis Samuel need to score at least 53.06 points combined. And that's just to beat Pete Overzet of 4 for 4 in Rotoviz, uh, who is done scoring points uh, for this week. I think he finished with something around 165 points. And so for me to catch him, I need those 53 plus points from Ingram, Thomas, and Samuel. I also need my guys to outscore Ian Thomas by 6 points uh, to beat Chris Knowles of the Texans Wire. And to beat uh, the fan in SFB, Joshua Evers, or Evers, I need my players to outscore the stack of Cam Newton, Andy, and Thomas. Uh, so that, that's the short version. Th- th- those are the baselines I need to meet. And then the scenarios start to get a little ridiculous because I'm going to talk about other owners who are ahead of me in points uh, but have uh, other players active still. So I need my guys to outscore Alvin Kamara by about 35 points, and that's to beat... Sean Valukas of Fantasy Labs. I also need them to outscore Christian McCaffrey by 50.62 points to beat Dan Harris. So I've got three guys. He's got one. Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe I can do this. And of course, Dan Harris, the guy I'm least likely to beat. You know, he has McCaffrey and he has a 51-point lead effectively. Uh, He's the one I'm also facing in my division final. He came out of the Zoidberg division as well. Uh, So... Still, as I, as I sit here recording this podcast, I'm, I put on my SFB8 shirt, had to do it. I'm cheering my guys along. It's going on in the background as I record. Uh, but by the time you hear this, you'll probably already know if Ingram, Thomas, and Samuel were able to lead me to this improbable victory 
But either way, win or lose, I want to once again thank Scott Fish for this incredible event. These leagues are amazing. It's a joy to play in them every year. And it is the perfect platform to promote 2QB and Superflex as the future of fantasy football. I do think we're going to get there. And the Scott Fish Bowl is a, is a huge reason why, if we ever do. So th- those are my leagues. Hopefully that you know gave you a little bit of insight into my thought process. Uh, kind of what I'm thinking about after these matchups are done, or at least mostly done. Um, and I don't know, maybe that process insight will help you, uh, in your leagues in the future. Um, I hope so at least. So with that out of the way, let's get into the actual, you know, standard stuff we do in the week 15 recap and what stood out to me. Well, um, first of all, because it's two QB, we have to talk about Mike Glennon. Glennon got some run in relief of Josh Rosen. He was not very good. And by he, I mean, both of them, uh, Josh Rosen was very bad and, and, you know, Mike Lennon didn't do much either. Uh, and ultimately I think that's kind of the big takeaway here. I don't think either of the Arizona quarterbacks will be relevant until the Cardinals shore up their offensive line problems and put some better weapons around those guys. I mean, with Christian Kirk on IR, uh, there's just not enough there behind David Johnson and Larry Fitzgerald. And, and Fitzgerald is definitely on the downslope of his career. So uh, overall, that, that offense just needs a lot of work. And I think until they get there, uh, Rosen or Glennon or whoever is, is going to struggle. Also, what stood out, Nick Mullins, man, remaining surprisingly competent, thanks to Kyle Shanahan. But you can't start him in Week 16 against the Bears. You just can't. So let's move on. Uh, also, the Nick Foles end-of-season magic appears to be back. I'll talk more about him in the Week 16 preview, but the big takeaway here is that Carson Wentz is droppable in all redraft formats. Uh, I don't care if you're in a two-quarterback league, uh, unless you're unless it's a keeper or dynasty league, there, there's no room for Carson Wentz on your roster. You should at least be trying to block your opponents from other good players off the wire. Uh, they're not going to be able to use Wentz against you. You can safely cut him. You probably should have done that leading up to week 15 when it was announced, you know, he was having back issues and that Foles was going to start. And while Foles was impressive, uh, kind of standing in for Wentz, uh, against the Rams, I, I did not expect the game to go that way. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, he wasn't my boom of the week at quarterback. And this is the QB who outperformed my expectations the most in week 15, there were only a few candidates. I think that I have to throw in Nick Mullins against Seattle. He finishes the QB 12 pending Monday Night Football with 14.8 fantasy points. I just didn't expect the Niners to be able to move the ball that well against Seattle. I, I understand they were at home. There were some wonky things going on with the weather there, but Nick Mullins impressed me. Uh, I like what I saw from him. I, I don't think that the Niners have a tough decision necessarily between Mullins and Garoppolo, but this could be a situation where Mullins is that high-end backup, kind of like Foles is for the Eagles. And so it'll be interesting to see how his career plays out. That's going to be fascinating to see over the next couple seasons. Uh, another couple candidates who I won't officially call my uh, boom of the week, uh, Josh Johnson at Jacksonville, QB 11, almost 15 points. Stands out as a solid performance in a week with a lot of bad quarterback play. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the hashtag Konami code remains largely undefeated. Rushing QBs are good, and Josh Johnson is a rushing QB. So even against a tough matchup like Jacksonville, uh, there, there's value there. I did talk about him as well for that reason in my A to Z article uh, leading into week 15. On the flip side of that blurb was Josh Allen and how Detroit had really limited uh, rushing production on the ground. I kind of picked up on that thanks to uh, a good episode of On the Couch, um, the Football Guys podcast with Sigmund Bloom, and his guest was Paul Charchi, and he pointed out how uh, the Lions really had not given up much production on the ground. Two quarterbacks, despite facing a lot of guys who tend to run the ball a lot, 
With that said, Josh Allen did score a rushing touchdown, even though he didn't get that yardage on the ground. So I don't know. I, I think that it wasn't super predictable. Um, I don't feel too bad about missing out on him. And, and that's kind of why I don't think he's the true boom of the week. Uh, for me, it has to be Sam Darnold against Houston. He finishes the QB three with over 21 fantasy points. And again, that's not great relative to what we've come to expect based upon the first uh, 14 weeks of the year. Uh, in week 15, 21 points was huge from a QB, and Darnold was really impressive. I, I thought that that Houston defense uh, was really going to give him fits, but he played well, man. I, I I didn't get to watch much of that game, but based upon the reaction I saw on Twitter, based upon the box score and his numbers, I, I think that what Darnold did was really impressive. So he's my boom of the week. Bust of the week at quarterback, the guy who underperformed my expectations the most. Can we call it a five-way tie? Uh, four, four of these guys played in only two games, and so I'll touch on them first. Uh, ben Roethlisberger against New England finishes a QB 15 with just over 13 points. Uh, Tom Brady mirrored that, essentially, QB 14 uh, with only .06 more than Roethlisberger. Both those guys were really disappointing considering what we thought might have been you know, an up-and-down, back-and-forth, shootout type of matchup. The big takeaway f- for this type of outcome is to be wary of late-season shootout potential, I guess, or shootout expectations, I should say. It's winter, it's cold, and teams are going to want to run the ball more. Defenses are going to be able to exert their will a little bit more on games. And this is super descriptive, this is super narrative-heavy, but I think it matters. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such wonky performance over the past three weeks. It's not going to apply to every game and every team. Uh, certain players are going to be able to outperform expectations based upon weather or matchup, of course. But I think it makes sense to maybe steer a little bit more into betting the unders uh, down the stretch and betting more on running games than passing games in these later weeks of the season. That's something I'm going to be paying a little bit more attention to uh, in future years, I think. The other game uh, with a couple of bust QBs, Dak Prescott in Indianapolis, Andrew Luck uh, against Dallas. Dak was the QB 25, 6.24 fantasy points. And the Cowboys just seemed like a different team on the road. Uh, But more importantly, Indianapolis, I think, matched up well against Dallas. And I think this is one of the reasons why Prescott won't be my you know clear-cut bust of the week, because... The Cowboys just didn't really have enough receiver depth behind Amari Cooper to beat the Colts' defense. The Colts were very good against wide receivers entering this game, and they proved that again against Dallas. Um, On the other side of the matchup, Andrew Luck, QB 22, uh, under 10 fantasy points. Maybe not too surprising, as we know that the Dallas defense is good, but Indianapolis won this game. They just didn't have to do much in the passing game to do it. They were really effective on the ground, and again, I think those sorts of narrow game script and narrow matchup avenues um, are something that are much harder to identify ahead of time, especially when you're talking about a player like Luck, who really has been so dependable based upon the pure volume that he puts up week to week. And this game was indoors, so we can't blame it on the weather or anything. We, We can blame it, I guess, on the matchup. And maybe we should have seen a below average game from Luck, but this sort of dud I did not see coming. Even still, because it might have been somewhat predictable, I'm not going to call him my bust of the week. It has to be Jared Goff against the Eagles. Goff was at home. He was playing against a defense that had been shredded by opposing quarterbacks for uh, many weeks now. And Goff only managed to be the QB 20 uh, with about 10.7 fantasy points. 
at this point, we have to be worried about the Rams offense minus Cooper Cup. And I saw a lot of people talking about this on Twitter today. Uh, I, I share a lot of those concerns. I still think they have to turn it around to some extent. But on the other side of that coin, this is kind of what I was projecting from Goff in the preseason. And it's funny how this stuff works out. We're wrong, and then we're right. That's another thing that Sigmund Bloom tossed a lot about on the couch, and something that I've kind of gravitated towards is this idea that these takes that I had back in the preseason, you know, where I was saying, okay, we need to fade Carson Wentz, we need to fade Jared Goff, we need to uh, look at their touchdown rates from last season and assume that they're not going to repeat, and then... Of course, even if they come out and play gangbusters for the first few weeks of the season, or the first however many weeks of the season like Goff did, uh, I, I think that there's still something to be said about that original analysis that led us to believe that, you know, you know, Goff might be a little overrated. And watching him against the Eagles, you could see that in his throws. He really wasn't as accurate as he needed to be to win that game. Maybe that's because Josh Reynolds isn't in the right spots like Cooper Cup might have been or, or, you know, or Gerald Everett. I shouldn't blame this all on Josh Reynolds. But for whatever reason, Goff just hasn't been the same since Cup went on IR. And I think that they can dig their way out of this. I, I think that McVeigh is a good enough coach. You know, Gurley on the ground unlocks enough space for Goff to be good on a week-to-week basis. But we have to be worried, uh, you know, down the stretch here. I don't think we need to worry about the Rams in general facing Arizona and San Francisco in these final two weeks, but I'll talk more about the concerns with Goff in that Week 16 matchup uh, in the Week 16 preview. And with the bust of the week out of the way, uh, we can do that. Um, Programming notes for Week 16, of course. uh, No Thursday Night Football this week, but there are two Saturday games again. uh, Washington at Tennessee, plus Baltimore at the Chargers. So if you have players on any of those four teams, you want to make sure that you're setting some sort of alarm on your phone or, or whatever. Set yourself an alarm. Make sure you don't have any inactives leading up to either of those games on Saturday. And so with that out of the way, let's talk about quarterback streamers for Week 16. And typically we're looking for a low-end QB2 or a QB3 type who owners wouldn't normally start. But this week, those players are looking good. And there are a lot of interesting options I'm going to kind of kick off this segment by declaring Baker Mayfield and Lamar Jackson ineligible. I think they've kind of graduated from streaming consideration uh, every week. I think that they're more than likely going to be starting for the teams that they're on. Uh, Or if they're not starting, it'll be clear that, you know, uh, that owner has, you know, much better options at QB, uh, you know, whether it be the Drew Brees types or what have you. And maybe Josh Allen deserves that graduate status as well uh but i'm skeptical it just seems like the wheels could come off of his performance in any given week i talked about earlier how he buoyed his week 15 line by getting that rushing touchdown he didn't have the rushing yardage uh, like he had in previous weeks and so if he hadn't scored that on the ground like if that had gone to marcus murphy or maybe if the bills had just got stopped in that goal line attempt then you know we would be looking at josh allen's week 15 in a much different light with that said, you know, he's he's facing New England this week. Uh, the Patriots have allowed the 11th most points per game to quarterbacks, 18.4 PPG. Uh, six top 10 finishes, nine top 20 finishes against the Patriots this year. The average weekly finish against New England is QB 13.9, which is uh, ninth highest in the league. So I, I don't know. I, I just kind of have to assume that Josh Allen has graduated from streamer consideration because his owners are probably starting him just based upon the recent performance. You know, people are funny like that. Uh, that 
never fuck with a winning streak scene from Bull Durham comes to mind. I, I just don't know how, if you've been getting this sort of production from Josh Allen, why, why you would steer away or how you could steer away from that in week 16. Because if you were already starting him, you probably didn't have the requisite, you know, high-end quarterbacks to be, you know, plugging in above Allen in the first place. So you're probably still in that same boat, would be my guess. Uh, of course, in a one-quarterback league, that's different, right? You probably don't necessarily, you probably have more options you know, on the waiver wire or whatever uh, to weigh against Allen. But in a two-quarterback league, I think that Josh Allen is kind of beyond streamer status. If you have been starting him, he's probably still a viable streamer based upon this matchup. And that's mostly because along with the rushing floor that he provides, you get passing upside. And I've talked about this a little bit. He's not a great passer. He's not an accurate passer, but he's going to pass the ball X number of times per game and he's got a big arm so he doesn't need to connect on too many of those deep shots to add on to that rushing floor he's already giving you and that's what makes him a viable streamer and that's what makes him a viable I guess regular starter at this point um, you know kind of going beyond streaming Um, so he's out of contention I'm gonna kind of dig a little deeper and I've got a lot of names to throw at you Um, the first is Josh Johnson we can go back to the well with him He's on the road at Tennessee, and that's not a great matchup. The Titans allow about 15 points per game, uh, 28th in the NFL, so uh, not not very good. Uh, only four top 10 finishes against them, only seven top 20s to this point in the season. Uh, the average weekly finish against them is QB 18.4, uh, 29th in the NFL. With that said, Johnson's rushing production kind of insulates him against a tough matchup like this. He's just a floor play, though. He's not a guy you want to plug in if you're looking for any sort of ceiling against Tennessee, especially because the Titans want to grind you down. They want to run the ball a lot. They want to shorten the game. And so that's going to limit the opportunities that Josh Johnson has, even to provide uh, you know, those rushing uh, carries um, for a floor. And so I, I don't think that he's uh, my streamer of the week. Uh, on the other side of the matchup, we have to consider Marcus Mariota versus Washington. Washington allows about 17.6 points per game, 15th most in the NFL, middle of the pack, Uh, six top 10s against them, eight top 20s against them this season. But again, the Titans, all they want to do is run the ball. And I think that that makes Mariota pretty risky. He's not unstartable, though. I think that he's very usable in this matchup. I just would try to look elsewhere if I could. Next guy I want to talk about is Jeff Driscoll at Cleveland. The Browns give up about 17 points per game. So again, right in the middle of the pack uh, among NFL defenses. Only three top 10 finishes against the Browns this year, which I was surprised by. Now with that said, they've allowed 10 top 20s. So the floor against Cleveland is really safe. Uh, Average weekly finish against them is QB 15.7. So right in that same range as Washington, despite the fact that they've given up half the top 10 finishes that Washington has. Driscoll has some Konami code appeal of his own, uh, just like Johnson, Mariota, and Josh Allen, but I don't think you can trust him on the road, and one of the things I noticed when I watched him against the Raiders in Week 15 was just how sloppy he is with the ball. Like, while he's scrambling, like, his arms are flailing all around. Like, it's not going to take much to punch the ball out from him. We know he's kind of a risky passer and not a very uh, you know smart passer at this point in his career, so there's interception risk as well. I think that Driscoll, if you're desperate, you can use him based upon the matchup if you just need a floor play, but chances are you can do better. If you've made it this far, you probably have a better quarterback option. Cody Kessler at Miami is another one to consider. Miami's given up about 18 fantasy points per game, which is uh, 12th best in the NFL. Six top 10s against them, nine top 20s. Average weekly finish of QB 14.5 against them. 
I'm just not sure how you can rely on any aspect of this Jaguars team in fantasy right now. So I have to talk about him because he's, you know, a streamer worth considering based upon, you know, the matchup and the criteria for a streamer. Uh, But I I don't want to use Kessler. I would probably actually rather use any of the other guys we've talked about to this point, um, including Driscoll, just because at least with Driscoll, you're going to get up-tempo offense from the other side of the ball. You're going to get Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb pushing Driscoll to throw the ball. I don't think Kessler's going to get that playing against Miami. Um, I mean, both of those guys are on the road, so I don't think, again, you don't want to start either. But if, if you're forced to choose between those two, I think I would rather have Driscoll. And so that brings us to our three, I think, key candidates for Streamer of the Week. And the first guy I'll talk about is Nick Foles. Uh, he's going to be at home against Houston. Houston has been a solid defense, but not unbeatable. 16.8 points per game, five top 10s against them, nine top 20s. Average weekly finish against them is QB 16 on the nose. But we have to be concerned about Houston's pass rush versus Philly's somewhat patchwork offensive line. There are concerns there. We just can't ignore that. I know that Foles looked good in that matchup against the Rams. Everything is a must-win for Philly at this point. Houston is looking good. I think they're now currently in the the two-seed in the AFC, which is insane. But anyway, I I think that Houston wants to keep winning in an effort to get that by. They're going to be on the road, which isn't great. But I think that based on the injuries that Philly has up front and based upon the fact that we're talking about Nick Foles, he's, he's been hit or miss in the past. I think this is a game where he could be more missed than hit uh, based upon the defense he's facing. So he's not my streamer of the week, although I think you can consider him. And so that leaves two guys who I'll, I'll put it to you in two ways. I think the floor streamer play of the week is Case Keenum at Oakland, 19.3 points per game allowed by the Raiders, eighth most in the NFL, six top tens against them, 11 top twenties average weekly finish against Raiders is QB 13.2. I understand that Keenum doesn't throw the ball a ton, but it's just so damn easy to throw it against Oakland that it doesn't matter. He's he's a, a really safe option in Week 16, and if he's your QB2, I don't think you need to be worried about it. Now, if you need someone with a little bit more ceiling, I think the play is Sam Darnold at home against the Green Bay Packers. The Packers haven't allowed as many points per game as the Raiders, only 17.12, which is, right again, right in the middle of the pack, 16th in the NFL. But they've also allowed five top 10s and 11 top 20s. Average weekly finish against the Packers is QB 14.1. And I think that the Packers are more likely to push the Jets to throw with their offense. Like Aaron Rodgers is going to be able to move the ball against the Jets. Derek Carr against the Broncos? I'm not so sure. (laughs) And so I think that Darnold is is a better play than Keenum in Week 16 for that reason. He's probably going to see just more passing volume. So the concerns we have about Keenum, even though the matchup is good, uh, those volume concerns we have with Keenum shouldn't be as much of a concern with Darnold. And I think that's why he's got to be my official streamer of the week. It's risky if you, you know, have other options. If you're, if you're a favorite, maybe you don't play Darnold, but I I don't know, man, week week 16 is one of those times when you kind of got to push your chips in and play for a ceiling more so than in other weeks. I think in the playoffs in general, this is probably good advice, is to not play scared. And with that in mind, I think you need to chase the points that Darnold can get you because you have to score more than your opponent to win. You just have to do it. Um, and, and that's, wow, just or thinking about what I just said is so ridiculous. That's some like 
NFL announcer, you know, trite analysis. You have to score more to win. But what I'm saying is you have to try to score as many points as possible right now. And I think if you're weighing between a guy like Darnold and a guy like Keenum, you have to play for ceiling with that in mind. You have to play for the highest possible points you think a play can get you. And I think that that's Darnold. Now, from the optimism of streamer of the week, let's uh, let's move into the depths of the clipboard holder of the week, the quarterback who I would normally start, but I'm going to be avoiding in week 16. And I'm going to try to be bolder with these. I want to talk about guys who are going to be tough to bench, right? If you have someone who's traditionally in past seasons been a good player to start, but you know now you're not going to. I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew Stafford is the, is the guy that immediately comes to mind. Uh, that, that's that's not helping anybody. We already know, based upon the past however many weeks, that Matthew Stafford isn't a good play. What we're really looking for, or what I'm really looking for here, are quarterbacks who, you know, generally I'm going to plug in every week. And I have five names to throw out. I'll start out just by listing them so you know who we're going to get to. It's Deshaun Watson, Ben Roethlisberger, Jameis Winston, Philip Rivers, and Jared Goff. And so we'll talk about Goff first because I mentioned this earlier, but this is one of those situations where... The Cardinals are such a soft matchup against the run that Todd Gurley could very well make Goff irrelevant. We've seen him do this multiple times this year. We've seen him do it last season. And this just seems like another one of those matchups where Goff may not have to throw for them to do much. And I think that makes him risky. Now, with that said, look at what Matt Ryan did against this defense last week. They could have run the ball with Tevin Coleman. I mean, Coleman had a big game, but Matt Ryan still got his. And so Goff can also get his. I don't think he's my clipboard holder of the week. I think we have to look to a quarterback with a worse matchup, and we'll get there, but let's talk about Deshaun Watson at Philly next. And Philly, you know, who just played against Goff, had been very favorable for quarterbacks. They allowed about 18.5 points per game, ninth most in the NFL. They allowed six top 10s this season, nine top 20s. Average weekly finish against the Eagles was QB 14.6. And with Watson, you know, the Texans are still having trouble protecting him. Uh, Entering week 15, Houston ranked second worst in adjusted sack rate allowed per football outsiders, and only Dallas had allowed more sacks than Houston's 46 coming into this past week. Plus, Watson is on the road, and that Philly pass rush did come alive against the Rams. We saw saw that happen, and if, if that happens again here against Houston, Watson could be running from his life. So despite the stats, despite how teams had been torching the Eagles through the air on defense prior to shutting down Goff, I'm a little worried about Watson in fantasy finals. I I don't think I could bench him here because he does have that rushing ability to some extent. I'm I'm worried. I'm just he he's not my clipboard holder of the week. That's that's it. Uh, The next guy I want to bring up is Ben Roethlisberger on the road at New Orleans, and New Orleans has allowed more points per game to quarterbacks than anybody. So again, this is something where the matchup looks good, right? Twenty one point one six points per game against five top tens allowed by the Saints, nine top twenties. Average weekly finish against them is about QB thirteen sixth best in the NFL. But Big Ben on the road is typically bad news, and the Saints defense has looked solid enough leading up to Week 15, especially at home. But I'm, I'm probably playing Roethlisberger because I just don't see a game script here where he just doesn't do anything. The New Orleans defense isn't that good. And so that brings me to the last two guys, the two who I think are most qualified to be our clipboard holder of the week. Uh, the first is Phillip Rivers at Baltimore. Uh, Baltimore allows the third fewest points per game, uh, about 15. Five top 10s against them, though. Uh, Only eight top 20s. Uh, The average weekly finish against them is QB 18.3, which is 28th in the NFL. Still, even though this matchup is tough, the Ravens 
could afford the Chargers some short fields, I think, by way of Lamar Jackson turnovers. Kind of like we saw with Joe Flacco back in week two on the road against the Bengals. It's not a great spot for Rivers, but I'm, I'm strangely okay with him because I think this game should have, at the very least, be competitive. Uh, the Chargers have proven to be matchup beaters to some extent this season, and I think that L.A. is going to need to throw to win. Uh, we don't know exactly how healthy Melvin Gordon's going to be in this game, and even though Keenan Allen might be out, I think that there's reason to believe that Phillip Rivers is still going to chuck it to some extent. I don't like it. I think that he's definitely benchable. Don't get me wrong. If you have two other good options here, like one of the streamers of the week and you know another good quarterback like like Drew Brees or like Roethlisberger or even like Jared Goff, I think you could bench Rivers in that scenario. But you, I don't think you have to bench him because of the matchup. It's fair too, though. Uh, my official clipboard holder of the week has to be Jameis Winston. He's going on the road to Dallas. And the Cowboys, as we discussed with Andrew Luck uh, in the week... 15 recap uh, the Cowboys have been good they've allowed 15.8 points per game against uh, 25th in the NFL only three top 10s against Dallas this year only nine top 20s average weekly finish against them's QB 17.5 so it's a little bit more favorable looking from a floor perspective than uh, Rivers against the Ravens but the ceiling just isn't there against Dallas and, and a lot of that has to do with the way that Dallas operates on offense they run the ball a lot they control the clock and they slow the game down. And so that limits the opportunities for opposing passers to really go nuts with volume. So even though we know that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers don't have a good running game, that they're going to throw it a lot, just because they're going to have fewer drives based upon playing Dallas means that Winston's ceiling is capped. And again, in the finals of a fantasy football league, I want to be playing for ceiling. And so I think that's why Winston has to be the clipboard holder it's as simple as that. So with those projections for streamer and clipboard holder of the week out of the way, I wanted to answer some questions uh, from uh, our Twitter followers, from listeners to the podcast. Uh, I put it out there that I would answer every question I got, and I didn't get that many, but uh, the questions I got were good. A lot of them were really kind of tough for me to parse through, and so let's dive in. Uh, the first one is from Jim Liu, and he asks, is Matt Ryan over Trubisky in Week 16? And he also says, Assuming I'm not benching Drew Brees, if he has another down game tonight, I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't usually rank quarterbacks this early in the week, but I, I tried to get ahead of the game in preparation for this podcast. And my initial rankings have these quarterbacks, Matt Ryan and Mitchell Trubisky, back-to-back. -back. Uh, Trubisky is my QB9, Matt Ryan is my QB10 as I'm recording this right now. So needless to say, I think they're very close and we're going to be splitting hairs if we're deciding between them. So I think you can go either way and not feel terrible about it. But I give the edge to Trubisky because he runs the ball better. I love that rushing production. And also because Matt Ryan traditionally struggles outdoors, uh, you know, outside of domes. Um, now, for the record, I would not play either one of them over Breeze, regardless of how this matchup plays out against Carolina. Um, the only way I would bench Breeze is if he's not healthy coming out of tonight's game. The next question is from at NY Buckeyes, and he asks, in a four-point-per-passing-touchdown league, Lamar Jackson or Baker Mayfield? And kind of like with Ryan and Trubisky, I think Lamar Jackson and Baker Mayfield are in the same tier in Week 16, that QB 10 to QB 15 range. And so this is where matchup is really going to dictate who you want to play, I think. If you're looking for a floor, I'd go with Jackson. His rushing production just makes him super safe, and... 
while I said I, I generally try to aim for ceiling, I think Jackson's floor is so safe that you can justify playing him based upon that if you're a favorite. Now, if you need ceiling, if you're uh, you know an underdog coming into this matchup, or if you feel like you're on the fence between being an underdog and a favorite, I kind of like Mayfield. I think there's potential for him to drop another mediocre performance for sure, you know, with Nick Chubb doing most of the heavy lifting against a bad Bengals defense. But in this battle for Ohio, I, I really think Mayfield and the passing offense could show up with an, a little bit of extra swagger, kind of based upon, you know, divisional matchup. Mayfield's feeling himself a little bit coming off last week's victory, and they're at home this time. So I think that that bodes well for him. Uh, with that in mind, I'll have Mayfield ranked a little bit higher. Because again, you got to go for the gusto uh, with your championship run. But if you are the favorite in your matchup by a significant margin, or even just a solid margin, I think I'd probably use Jackson. I think that he's just super trustable. Next up, uh, Mark Berger or Mark Berger asks uh, four point per passing touchdown PPR. This is a super flex question. He wants to know Marcus Mariota, Jamal Williams, or Kalen Balage. And so this is a good point to bring up the fact that Frank Gore got hurt in Week 15. Balaj came in in relief and had a really nice performance, uh, kind of continuing to tamp down the fantasy value that we might have thought that Kenyon Drake was going to have this season. Still, I don't think you can play Balaj in this sort of scenario because Drake could still be involved. So I think it comes down to Mariota versus Jamal Williams, and the reason Jamal Williams is relevant here is because Aaron Jones got hurt. Williams is going to step up and probably be the starter here in Week 16, that's further evidenced by the fact that the Packers signed Capri Bibbs. Still, I I know that Mariota's been bad and his volume has been low. I just, I don't know, I just don't think I can bench a quarterback for Jamal Williams. Now, if it was a better running back, if it was someone who I, I and I get, I get that Williams is going to have the workload most likely, but I just don't know if the talent is there to really push the ceiling that a quarterback is going to have because Mariota's floor is relatively safe. Like worst case scenario is probably going to get you eight to 10 points. And worst case scenario with Jamal Williams is like zero to five points, right? With that factored in with, with also the fact that Mariota can throw 30 times, uh, throw two passing touchdowns and very easily hit, you know, like 15 to 20 points. Whereas, you know, if that, if Jamal Williams does that, that's a good game for him. I, I think you have to start the quarterback. I, I just, I'm very rarely going to advocate putting in a position player over a quarterback in the Superflex spot. And even though Mariota hasn't been great, that's still the case here. Next question is from Brandon White, and he asks, in a Superflex, Lamar Jackson or Jameis Winston, thanks for another great year. Uh, no, thank you, Brandon, for listening in, uh, for following along. And I think probably my analysis uh, from earlier in the show will, will steer you in the direction of starting Lamar Jackson over Jameis Winston. Uh, I, like I said, I think Jackson is an every week starter at this point. I think Winston is the clipboard holder of the week. So uh, that's pretty cut and dry. I think it's got to be Jackson. The last question I have on the show is from Mark Rascon and a friend of the show, a friend of the site, um, longtime supporter of two QBs. Mark asks, looking at the overall season, what's the thing you learn the most? Maybe dive into taking different approaches next year uh, from drafting or anything else that might be helpful to listeners going forward. And this is a more vague question, but I think it's a great question because all of the answers I can think of are a little bit more nebulous, uh, you know, tougher to quantify, tougher to describe in precise terms. But I still like to try to do this stuff, right? It's, it may come out as gibberish and rambling uh, on the other end, on, on your headphones end. But uh, here I go, spitting my takes into the microphone. F first of all, 
I really like all the discussion this season of whether defense matters or not. Um, Josh Hermsmeyer, Frisco Josh, has really brought this to light, and I think he takes it a little overboard, of course. I've talked to him about it uh, a bit, and I've also talked about this premise on the show a fair amount, typically saying that I think defense does matter, just not as much as people think. Uh, I just find that those gray areas of nuance, kind of in between mattering and not mattering, uh, that's really interesting to me. And this is something that I've always had interest in. It, it led me to create the Gameflowbotic spreadsheet uh, back, you know, even before 2QBs.com existed when I was writing for the fake football. Just rather than looking at fantasy points allowed to a position, I think it's more important to consider the entire matchup holistically. When I'm scrutinizing a player, I want to know how the opposing offense, the opposing defense, and even the opposing special teams could impact that player's fantasy performance. And and I'll admit that the, the special teams analysis is something that I did a lot early on and it's kind of fallen off just because it's, it's harder to quantify it's flukier in the first place. So I don't think it's really worth keeping an eye on that much. Um, but still, it does matter. You know, it does come into play every once in a while. Anyway, I, I want to analyze likely game script in addition to, you know, the tactical advantages that a player has based upon the defensive personnel and the defensive scheme that that player is going to face. And you can't analyze game script without considering all phases of the game. Again, offense, defense, and special teams on both sides of the ball. That's why betting lines, you know, both spreads and over-under totals are so commonly used when projecting game-to-game performance for our fantasy players. They're a really simple and descriptive shortcut that we can use to quickly forecast which teams or which players should be in for higher scores in fantasy. And that's where another layer of nuance comes in, because... Betting lines don't exist based upon fantasy football. And furthermore, they, they're not always an exact representation of how the bookmakers believe that games are going to play out. The people who set the lines are playing off expectations for NFL teams and you know the players on those teams. So it's up to us as fantasy owners to figure out when those betting lines might be wrong and to adjust our analysis accordingly. So a good example of this is... When you see a public team like the Cowboys or the Packers as a you know certain type of favorite or whatever the betting line is, you can bet that that line is skewed in the Packers' favor, in the Cowboys' favor, because those are popular teams. They are public teams, and people like to bet on them because the general betting public is not rational. They're, they're not fully aware of their own biases, and with that in mind... The, the bookmakers adjust the lines, right? They they want to get equal action on both sides. They know that people want to bet on those two teams, so they skew the lines in those teams' favor to try to get equal action on both sides. So again, those are the types of things we have to kind of factor in. We can't just look at a line and take it at face value. We have to think about what's going into this line. Why are the Packers, you know, four and a half point favorites in this matchup instead of two and a half point favorites? And what does that tell us about the likely outcome from a fantasy perspective. And so a big takeaway for me when considering how much defense matters or how much a matchup matters was to think more deeply about which players are going to be able to beat those odds and perform in the face of a seemingly bad matchup. You know, stud players are studs for a reason. They're really good. But different players win in different ways on the field, and even the studs. So finding the stats and narratives to kind of identify a good or a bad matchup for a specific player is as important as it is difficult, right? It's not something that is easily done because the game can break in so many different ways and players 
are going to be defended against and schemed for in so many different ways based upon those matchups. It's There are a ton of moving parts. You kind of have to try to wrap your brain around the entire matchup as a whole and you know, play the percentages to some extent. And sometimes that means steering into more variants, kind of like I talked about with Baker Mayfield versus Lamar Jackson earlier. You have to sometimes go for the higher upside play based upon your fantasy matchup, not just based upon the NFL matchups. And so kind of bringing this all back around, identifying the nuance in a matchup, the nuance in a player's outlook against a certain defense. That's something I want to continue to approve upon in my analysis, and it's something that I'm thinking about more and more uh, with each of these passing weeks in the 2018 season. And while I'm, I guess, talking about kind of stud players and predicting their performance, you know, I think that I might as well steer into my second big takeaway from this season, and to do that, I have to kind of go all the way back to draft season. Now more than ever, I think it really pays to be risk-averse with your early round picks, even if that means being more willing to quote-unquote reach in that range of the draft. Why would you draft a holding out Le'Veon Bell when you could draft Ezekiel Elliott or Saquon Barkley, non-holdouts who are projecting for similarly elite volume with similarly elite talent, but without the risk associated with that holdout that Bell had? Or why draft Alvin Cook or Leonard Fournette coming off injuries the previous season when the league's top receivers are readily available and wide receiver is generally more predictable, more stable year to year? There's a ton of hindsight analysis here. You can't, again, I'm going to have trouble describing what I'm thinking and where this analysis is coming from. But I think that if you play in competitive leagues, you and your opponents should get smarter about fantasy every year. And so why take unnecessary risks when those risks can be someone else's problem? And you're going to have to steer into risk with your picks in the middle and late rounds anyway. So if you pass on risky high-end players like Bell, you can still win off your safer pick in that round, plus you know your middle round gambles if they pay off, even if that risky player like Bell that, that you passed on hits. In this case, Bell didn't hit, right? And so it's it's obvious for me to say, oh, you shouldn't have drafted Le'Veon Bell. It, that That's oversimplifying the analysis. My point is that even if Bell had hit, you didn't need to take that risk because you could have taken Ezekiel Elliott, who was safer at the time. You could have taken Saquon Barkley, who, yes, he had the risk of a bad offensive line, but if we believe he is a, an elite talent, if we believe he is the type of player who can elevate above his team's flaws... And, and the fact that, you know, he has that high draft capital, he has both rushing and receiving abilities, so he's game script de- independent, just like Bell is, but he's not holding out like Le'Veon Bell. Like, that lack of risk is what makes him more appealing. And so it's about that range of outcomes. Bell can either hit or completely miss like he did, whereas Barkley, the only way he's going to completely miss like Bell did was if he got hurt. And Barkley stayed healthy the majority of the season. He, you know, wasn't the best running back. I mean, Todd Gurley definitely holds that distinction, but Barkley was probably the number two, and there were enough signs there in the preseason that could have pointed us towards him. Or Zeke. You know, Zeke got drafted behind Bell in most leagues as well. He was really set up for success, and we we had the track record with Zeke, right? Like, he might have been safer than Barkley. He was probably the guy who should have been the RB2 in most drafts. Him or David Johnson, I guess. I, I mean, David Johnson was kind of a wishy-washy thing. He, he ended up getting screwed by his offensive line to some extent. And so, again, there's a lot of gray area here. It's really more of a, a feel thing I'm talking about. I have to admit that. 
But to extend beyond just those top running backs, I think we can talk more about the end of the first round, the second round, the third round. And a lot of this field-based analysis that I'm putting out there is based largely upon the success that I had drafting elite wide receivers a little bit more aggressively than most people. I wish I would have had the guts to elevate you know, a relative unknown like Barkley over the known risk of Bell in draft season, and I wish I was a little bit more vocal about drafting wide receivers early, those stud wideouts like Odell Beckham, Julio Jones, Michael Thomas, because that's what I did in draft season, and it really paid off for me. Like I, like I said, I made the playoffs in most of my leagues, and that's something I'm going to take away is uh, it's not like a true adherence to the zero RB draft strategy, but I found a much greater respect this season for the way that zero RB embraces and promotes anti-fragility and risk aversion. And I think that those two concepts have become a lot more important to me based upon how this season played out, because there really weren't that many busts at the top of the draft. And with that in mind, I don't think that we should be taking risks in the first round, in the second round, in the third round, because we're already going to be taking risks in the middle rounds and loading up with lottery tickets in that range. You really want to set your floor, your kind of baseline expectation of production with those early picks. And that means avoiding guys that are holding out. That means avoiding obvious injury risks. And that's a subjective. Again, it's it's about feel, but I feel like I had a good I feel like I had a good feel for that this year and uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that away from the 2018 season. So anyway, enough I guess patting myself on the back and uh, you know hindsight analysis based upon success. I, I, I hope at the top of the show all the hindsight analysis I had based upon my failures in week 15 will balance all this out. Uh, but this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in yet again. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. You can follow the site at 2QBs. You can send us questions by email, 2QBs at gmail.com. Uh, with the email address and the Twitter handle, you spell it out. It's T-W-O-Q-B-S. That's how you spell the web address as well, 2QBs.com. Please rate and review the podcast. Please subscribe if you hadn't. Next week's probably going to be a different type of show because week 17, you should not be playing season-long fantasy. If your league plays in week 17, your league is doing it wrong. Please plead with your commissioner to fix that and to only play your seasonal leagues up to week 16. That's when the championship of your league should be. With that rant aside, week 17 is a pretty fun one for daily fantasy, and you get a lot of very weird plays uh, that you can consider when teams are resting their starters. Uh, so with that in mind, I'm pr- I'm going to try to do an episode for week 17 that's very DFS-centric and specific to the quarterback position because, again, we're talking about 2QBs.com. So uh, hopefully I'll get a good uh, DFS-minded guest for that one. I'm still working on it. Uh, if you have any suggestions, feel free to hit me up uh, on Twitter and, and make that suggestion. Uh, but until then... Good luck in the fantasy championships. I I really hope that you can take it home. Thank you all for your listening support this season. Uh, It means a lot to me. It means a lot to the site. And uh, good luck again. Adios. Adios.